This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's Books podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, your host for today. In this episode, we are joined by Jairam Ramesh, who is known, of course, to many of our listeners, no doubt, as a former minister, a Rajya Sabha MP, and a leader of the Congress. But of course, Mr. Ramesh is also a very prolific author. He is the author of books including Indira Gandhi, A Life in Nature, Intertwined Lives, P.N. Hakshar and Indira Gandhi, and his last book, A Checkered Brilliance, The Many Lives of V.K. Krishna Menon underlined the thoroughness of Mr. Ramesh's research and how deep he digs into the subjects he pursues. That is very clearly evident in his latest book, which we will be discussing today. His book, The Light of Asia, the poem that defined the Buddha, is very unique in being the biography of a book and, of course, of the book's author. But it's very much focusing on The Light of Asia, which was an epic 1879 poem by Sir Edwin Arnold that told the story and philosophy of the Buddha and became, in some ways, an unlikely global sensation. In this podcast, we will talk about the book, the life of Edwin Arnold, the extraordinary reach of the light of Asia, and how it came to influence so many key 20th century figures, many of whom are very well known to those of us in India today. Thank you so much, Mr. Ramesh, for joining the podcast. Thank you, Anand. Look forward to it. The, the most obvious question I have to begin with uh, is, it's quite an interesting subject that you've chosen. And I was just curious if you could tell our listeners what exactly it was about Edwin Arnold. Was it Edwin Arnold, the man, the life, or was it the light of Asia that, that made you choose this very, very interesting path that you followed for the last few years? Well, actually, both of them, Manant, uh, the Light of Asia, um, the poem, you know, that defined the Buddha for many generations across the world was a book that I read many years ago in the mid 60s when I was a teenager. Uh, and it remained with me. Uh, but as I, you know, grew, grew older and got uh, interested in political history, I realized how important uh, the Light of Asia was. Uh, you know, to the thinking of Vivekananda, to the thinking mm. of Tagore, uh, to Gandhi, uh, to Nehru, uh, to Ambedkar, uh, in a different way, uh, and many others. Uh, so there was this, uh, the impact, uh, and you know, every Indian really uh, is, 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 a, is a, if not a Buddhist, every Indian uh, has a Buddha in it. You know, mm. Buddha is hardwired into the Indian DNA. Uh, you know, I think uh, he really is part of our of our existence, even though we may not define ourselves to be Buddhist uh, in the ritualistic sense of the term. So there was that impact of the light of Asia, mm-hmm. the cultural impact, the political impact, the literary impact, the impact on social reformers, you know, um, uh, in different parts of the country, including Kerala and Tamil Nadu, for instance. Then, of course, the personality of Arnold. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, one of the most influential books, uh, mm. which uh, which Gandhi kept with him till the very last, 
which he recommended to all and sundry across the world is Arnold's translation of the Bhagavad Gita right. of 1885 called the Song Celestial. Uh, and in fact, Gandhi writes in his autobiography that he came to into Hinduism. He got to know about Hinduism through the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, mm. And he got to the Bhagavad Gita uh, through Edwin Arnold's uh, translation, the Song Celestial. Of course, Gandhi had a completely different interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita than, for example, Bal Gangadhar Tilak, who drew a completely different lesson, or a, a D.D. Kosambi, you know, who had a completely different take on the Bhagavad Gita. So Edwin Arnold, you know, the principal of the Deccan College, uh, you know, uh, the author of uh, one of the well-known translations of the Geet Govinda, uh, and of course, uh, the two seminal works, uh, the, the Song Celestial, the translation of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which is still in print, by the way, uh, which still keeps getting published, and the Light of Asia, uh, which defined the Buddha, uh, which um, the Theosophical Society, uh, even today, hmm. uh, White Lotus Day, uh, the death anniversary of Madame Blavatsky uh, on the 8th of May, uh, one of the things that gets done that day is readings from the Light of Asia. Hmm. Before we come to the light of Asia, if I could just, uh, uh, you know, the story of how Edwin Arnold came to, to, to India and get interested is quite interesting. So before we discuss the poem, could you tell us a little bit about how uh, a 25-year-old Oxford graduate ended up in Pune? Well, he, you know, he obviously pulled wires, Anand, uh, and ended up, ended up as principal of, uh, uh, you know, uh, what became the Deccan College much later. Mm -hmm. The Pune College that became the Deccan College. Uh, and he was principal from uh, the end of 1857 uh, to the beginning of 1860. So mm -hmm. he came to India as the mutiny was just, you know, or the mutiny or the, uh, or the first war of Indian independence or the rebellion, uh, depending on your point of view. Uh, but uh, as that was winding down, uh, so he was here at that point. He was here when the uh, East India Company's control transited to rule by uh, the British crown to Queen Victoria. Uh, he obviously, uh, you know, he was, um, uh, he obviously had a great gift for languages. Right. Uh, he picked up Marathi, he picked up Sanskrit in India. I mean, he read the original, I mean, he would read the original Sanskrit. Mm. Uh, and later on, of course, he became uh, well-versed in Arabic, uh, in Persian, uh, in Turkish. And he has poems, uh, in, you know, in these languages as well. So I think, you know, he came to India uh, as a principal. He came to India, you know, out of, out of Oxford. Uh, he had demonstrated in Oxford, um, you know, remarkable Catholicity of thought. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, that uh, truth would be approached from different directions. Uh, and he, you know, he was coming, uh, uh, coming, to, India, coming to India. Um, coming to India was not unknown uh, for Englishmen belonging to his class and to his background. Mm. Uh, so he came to India, was here for, uh, you know, a little over two years, uh, came back to India subsequently uh, in 1886. Um, uh, uh, and um, 1885, 1886. Mm. Um, and um, uh, so, uh, but I think that began his lifelong. Um, he was a, he was a he was an imperialist to the core. Right. He was a Victorian uh, imperialist to the core, 
but like but like sir william jones he became an orientalist uh, in fact you know one of the well known books that came out of the den madras uh, uh, by g a natesan and company you know a very well known publishing company of those uh, years uh, was a book called eminent orientalists and one of the eminent orientalists there was sir edwin arnold so to to the indians of that generation uh, because of his translation of the hitopadesha uh, first then his translation of the geeta govinda yep uh, then the light of asia and then of course uh, his translation of the bhagavad gita mm-hmm. as the song celestial uh, you know created for him uh, this great image mm-hmm. uh, you know amongst um, educated indians and educated indians that time meant upper caste uh, you know indians uh, so uh, normally uh, tamilians usually tamilians or bengalis or or maharashtrians you know and uh, this is we are talking of the late 19th and early 20th century mm. uh, so he was uh, you know he was steeped uh, in indian learning indian culture uh, he was not a scholar by any way he was not a max muller he was not a riss davids for inst- instance he was not a scholar in that sense of the term he was more of a popularizer mm. uh, you know and um, uh, uh, through uh, the geet govinda Uh, through the hitopadesha and all the other books uh, he really built up his reputation as somebody who interpreted uh, uh, works of indic civilization uh, you know to a western audience you know one of the things i liked about this book is it's not just about the life of edwin arnold and the light of asia it takes you on a journey to the late 19th century early 20th century whole intellectual environment uh, of uh, how people were looking at india and how those books were received um and it's full of uh, interesting snippets of which i wanted to point listeners to one uh, this is after he finishes his two year stint he goes back uh, to london and he becomes a leader a prolific leader writer for the telegraph um and that's when he begins all these works that you mentioned that sort of launch him as a well known author uh, including his uh, his book his translation of the hitopadesha and then you have a collection in 1875 um and there's this great quote that you pulled out of the telegraph and how uh, karl marx described it which really made me chuckle uh, where he says quote by means of a hidden and artificial sewer system all the lavatories of london spew their physical filth into the thames uh, and by means of the systematic pushing of the goose quill uh, the world capital spews out all the social filth into the great paper central sewer called the daily telegraph so that's part of the contradictions of edwin arnold that you mentioned which i found interesting where on the one hand he does seem to have empathy and affinity for indian thought uh, for indian philosophical traditions but then on the other hand he's this guy who is very much at home uh, as a leader writer of the telegraph and as you said it, he has very problematic views in many ways of of empire and of uh, quote on quote the natives as well so how how does he sort of inhabit both those worlds well he was a liberal imperialist uh, no doubt uh, he was the quintessential victorian you know he believed in britain's manifest destiny he believed in ultimate uh, self rule by indians right. uh, but uh, for him indians meant brahmins really you know his his universe was either maharashtrian brahmins or tamil brahmins or bengali <laughs> brahmins uh, you know so uh, but uh, he he was a believer in the manifest destiny uh, of 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 britain uh, on the civilizing role of britain 
but you know he he realized that india was uh, heir to a enormously rich and diverse cultural legacy mm. uh, buddhist hindu um islam you know he had a book on allah's names and he also had uh, books and uh, which translated persian works into english so uh, he knew about is very sensitive i mean as i said he is like the he was a william jones in many ways you know uh, and like max buller i mean none of these guys uh, you know were great exponents of uh, independence for india from britain at mm. most perhaps dominion status but even dominion status much later so uh, politically he was a tory you know uh, he was against home rule uh, even for ireland for that matter mm. you know uh, he was a was a, was a benjamin disraeli um, fan he believed in expansionism and british rule but as i said um, he was he was very conscious and very aware Uh, of india's cultural legacy and i think he was one of the uh, people who in late 19th century victorian england uh, brought indian literature oh. uh, you know uh, and what better uh, examples of indian literature than uh, mahabharata which he translated hitopadesha which he translated geeta govinda which he translated and of course the bhagavad gita uh, which he translated Uh, and because of the centrality of london uh, in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century his influence in london uh, you know reverberated across the atlantic uh, in the united states uh, and also spread in europe uh, and um, the way things worked then uh, you know when works became hits in london they automatically became hits in calcutta madras bombay you know and and places like this so uh it was he was uh, as i said, i mean you're absolutely right he was uh, he was an imperialist uh, in today's language i mean you know he has been deconstructed there have been books written on him and uh, that you know he was a unabashed uh, champion of empire which he was uh, but at the same time he was uh, what i found very interesting was that he was uh, steeped into popularizing and propagandizing virtually uh, the literary and cultural heritage uh, of india and persia to some extent and of course there was a time in the later part of his life when he became a uh, uh, you know he became a great admirer of japanese culture mm. uh, but india remained with him throughout his life But it is also interesting that ma- the many fans that he had, from Mahatma Gandhi to Nehru to Tagore, were, were able to kind of separate his personal views uh, on imperialism, on empire, to some degree. C. B. Raman, Anand. C. B. Raman. You know, just imagine the man, the man who won the Nobel Prize, India's first uh, Nobel Prize for Science in 1930, one of the greatest scientists the world has ever seen. And you know, he writes that. uh you know he was influenced extraordinarily influenced by three books mm. uh you know helmholtz's book on physics euclid's book on geometry and arnold's light of asia mm. uh, so it's not just an influence on vivekananda ramakrishna tagore gandhi nehru and political personalities or public figures but also on a person like c v raman you know which you uh, would not uh, normally expect i mean uh, on the one hand uh, he uh, rudyard kipling 
was a great uh, bhakt of edwin arnold on the other cv raman and could they i mean they're two diametrically opposed personalities rudyard kipling and and cv raman but it is interesting that people were able to separate uh, the man from his works which is something that i think doesn't happen in this century where uh, yes. that... yeah i mean i i was conscious of the fact you know it's i was conscious of the fact that i'm writing about a period you know it's very easy to be retrospective on right. it and even in my previous books uh, uh, in in my political biographies i have not been judgmental you know mm. my role as a writer has to is to bring out the, the times Absolutely. and he was living in the 19th century he was living uh, he died in 1904 so he cannot be considered a 20th century figure yeah. he's certainly a 19th century figure he's a victorian figure uh, in every sense of the term so that was an era the victorian era uh, it, it there was benevolence there was patronizing uh, you know <laughs> there was a sense of uh, as i said uh, the british duty uh, to make india fit for rule by itself mm. uh, and he has you know he, he said ultimately the british have to get out of india but he never never you know never gave a deadline you know it could have been 100 years it could have been a 200 years uh, so he was to that way he was very much uh, a symbol of british empire in india there's so much more to get into in this book and i think some we will leave for listeners to discover in the book such as his return to india the role he played in rediscovering in a way bodh gaya but before uh, yeah, the bodh gaya dispute uh, anand hmm. you know like the ayodhya dispute you know the hindu muslim dispute in ayodhya there was uh, for almost 60 70 years right a dispute in hindus and buddhists and there still is in many ambedkar organizations are not hmm. happy with the compromise that was worked out by rajendra prasad and nehru and shri krishna sinha hmm. uh, you know which gave control over the uh, bodh gaya temple the mahabodhi temple uh, you know to a committee in which you have half of them are buddhists and half of them right. are hindus uh, so that was a, that was a agitation hmm. uh, that went on uh, it got settled only in may 1953 uh, it went on for almost 60 years and it was triggered by uh triggered by arnold's visit uh to uh, bodh gaya uh you know in uh, in january late january of 1886 uh, and which where he wrote about uh, how uh, anguished he felt after seeing uh, the manner in which the shaivite priests the mm-hmm. mahant was dealing with uh, the mecca the jerusalem of mm-hmm. buddhism Uh, and you know of course he was wrong because uh, you know um, uh, bodh gaya was sacred um, to both the hindus uh, as well as uh, the buddhists so he bought a certain christian binary uh, yeah. you know in, it had to be either hindu or buddhist uh, you know like mecca is only muslim jerusalem uh, you know at that time was seen uh, uh, you know for 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 christians will not realizing that it's sacred uh, to three faiths not just to one faith uh, so he uh, his his columns his agitation uh, uh, led to the bodh gaya dispute right uh, and you know the bodh gaya dispute kept india's buddhist heritage uh, you know very much in public focus in fact uh, anand the man who really brought buddhism back into india hmm. um, 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 of course you know we associate ambedkar's conversion to buddhism Uh, in 1956 uh, but you know that was a political act but the man who restored buddhism 
to the center of Indian culture, I would argue, uh, and this may many people may not agree with me, mm. I would argue uh, was Anagarika Dharmapala, uh, you know, the Sinhalese uh, monk mm. who spent most of his life in Calcutta. Uh, with the Mahabodhi Society, which he founded. Uh, and it was thanks to Anagarika Dharmapala that not only Bodhgaya, but the, later on Sarnath, uh, you know, uh, uh, gets, uh, you know, redone, refurbished, mm. re-established. Uh, and so uh, to Anagarika Dharmapala, uh, who in many ways was influenced tremendously by Edwin Arnold, uh, we owe, uh, you know, the recovery of Buddhism. As part of our cultural heritage. So, of course, the light of Asia itself is a thread that holds this book together. Um, and as you say, it has eight books, and they go over the birth uh, of Siddhartha, they go over his uh, his life, and of course, uh, his work and his philosophy as well. Uh, could we, at this point, get you to give us a flavor of, of some of the light of Asia, uh, perhaps? The eighth book. Uh, let me say, say, let me say one thing, uh, Anand, hmm. that uh, Arnold was very much in the traditional historiography right. uh, of the life of the Buddha. Uh, it was not a book, uh, Light of Asia is not a book on Buddhism. It's right. not a book on Buddhist thought or Buddhist philosophy. It's a book on Buddha, the life of Buddha. Uh, you know, uh, and I think that's what, and I end the book by saying that the reason why the book became such a sensation was because it focused on the humanity of Buddha, right. not the divinity of Buddha. Because humanity unites, divinity divides. You know, and I think that's what uh, really uh, explains uh, the fact that the Light of Asia became such a tremendous sensation across the world and across cultures. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, but you know, his Light of Asia is embedded in the traditional historiography uh, of uh, Prince Siddhartha uh, seeing an old man, seeing a cripple, uh, seeing a corpse and seeing a monk. But as you know, this traditional uh, historiography was challenged by Ambedkar. Uh, and before Ambedkar, it had been challenged uh, by India's greatest uh, scholar uh, of Pali uh, and Buddhism uh, in the early part of the 20th century, Dharmanand Kosambi, uh, the father of the great D.D. Kosambi. Um, so uh, and that was a completely different historiography. Mm. Uh, you know, the, it was the political economy and the reasons why Buddha gave up, uh, you know, life and sought enlightenment was not because of the four sides, but because of disputes, you know, between two tribes and two clans. Mm. So I've, uh, the fact is that one should distinguish uh, Ambedkar's, um, you know, fascination with the light of Asia mm. uh, uh, from Gandhi, Vivekananda, Tagore, Nehru, and so many others. There is also Sri Narayana Guru. Uh, in Kerala. Uh, there is Iyoti Das uh, in Tamil Nadu, Lakshmi Narasu in Tamil Nadu. These were all social reformers. Mm. Uh, so they took out from the light of Asia. Uh, you know, it got, uh, you know, uh, um, the light of Asia uh, first got translated uh, into Bengali. Mm. Uh, uh, but, you know, that was not uh, in, in a social reformist uh, translation. It was uh, something uh, that was very much part of uh, culture and Ramakrishna and Vedanta uh, and Vivekananda then popularized it. But you know, there was an early translation uh, into Tamil by A. Madhavaya. Uh, there was a, a translation into Malayalam, uh, you know, in 1910, then subsequently in 1914. Uh, and so this became, uh, Light of Asia became 
you know, the message of the light of Asia was social equity, oh. uh, the obliteration of caste distinctions uh, that, you know, uh, Buddha did not um, accept uh, the caste system, uh, you know, which the Brahmins uh, preached. Uh, so uh, different people took different things out of the light of Asia. Mm. That's what I want to right. I want to highlight. Want to very much highlight. Mm. Well, it has eight books uh, and uh, five thousand three hundred lines, forty four thousand forty one thousand words mm. uh, in the light of Asia. Uh, you want me to read uh, the last few lines from the light of Asia, Anand? I thought what would be interesting is uh, if you could just give our listeners a flavor of what this was about. And I thought the last few lines that you mentioned in your yes. book. As, a, uh, as you mentioned, there are, there are eight books uh, on the life of the Buddha. Uh, and uh, the final book, book the eighth, is really the crux uh, of the life of Asia. And this is the, this is the book that uh, captured the world's imagination. Uh, it contains the four noble truths. The Eightfold Path, the Five Rules, and the Doctrines of Karma and Nirvana. And I think the closing lines uh, are were perhaps uh, the most evocative and mm. resonate across uh, countries, across cultures, across languages. It got translated into uh, multiple European languages, multiple Asian languages, multiple South Asian languages. And it ends thus. Here endeth what I write. Who loved the master for his love of us. A little knowing, little have I told. Touching the teacher and the ways of peace. Forty-five reigns thereafter showed he those. In many lands and many tongues. And gave our Asia light that still is beautiful. Conquering the word with spirit of strong grace. All of which is written in the holy books. And where he passed and what proud emperors carved his sweet words upon the rocks and caves. The Buddha died, the great Tathagata, even as a man amongst men, fulfilling all. And how a thousand crores since then have tread the path which leads where he went unto Nirvana, where the silence lives. And finally, of course, he ends. Ah, blessed world, O high deliverer, Forgive this feeble script which doth thee wrong, measuring with little with thy lofty love. Ah, lover, brother, guide, lamp of the law, I take my refuge in thy name and thee. I take my refuge in thy law of good. I take my refuge in thy order. Om. The dew is on the lotus. Rise, great sun. And lift my leaf and mix me with the wave. Om Mani Padme Hum. The sun cries, comes. The dew drop slips into the shining sea. And that's how this fantastic poem really ends. On that note, I think it's a good uh, way to end this conversation as well, Mr. Ramesh. Thank you so much for speaking with us and also for this book. It's really a, quite an interesting journey of both the man and more than that of the work and how it spread all over the world in the 20th century. There's lots more we didn't get into. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on how it went to China, to Japan. We'll save that for another conversation. But thank you so much for joining the Hindu podcast today. Jairam Ramesh, the author of The Light of Asia, the poem that defined the Buddha. 
थैंक यू अनंत डिलाइट टू बी विद यू थैंक यू फॉर लिसनिंग टू द हिंदू ऑन बुक्स You can now find the Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 